You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Richard Langlois, who is a professor at the University of Connecticut and also the author of uh, a number of books. The most recent book is called The Corporation and the 20th Century, which is really a, are we allowed to still use that word magisterial? Is that still like a a descriptor? Some of my blurbers have used the word. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and it really is, I think of it as as sort of a a follow-up to Chandler's book, right, on the visible hand and, and scale and scope. Yeah. Certainly in that tradition. Or a, re- a reimagining or a rethinking of Chandler in some ways. Well, a rethinking and a sequel, right? Because, I mean, Chandler wasn't around <laughs> long enough to see where his trend kind of broke down. But also the author of this book, I guess this is really just a series of lectures, um, The Dynamics of Industrial Capitalism, Schumpeter, Chandler, and the New Economy. And then, of course, this other book you co-authored, called Firms, Markets, and Economic Change, which I don't have with me, but I've incorporated into my thinking because I used that book as a textbook in my my class for, for many years. So welcome, Richard. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, as I mentioned, it is sort of a follow-up to Chandler, but it's also a follow-up to Schumpeter. And I guess in a way, it's part of a tradition in economics, which it's kind of not in the mainstream of academic economics. I mean, you do find in business schools, I think a higher prevalence of folks who are concerned with the organization and the firm trying to explain it and trying to understand it. But I think you point out that the mainstream tradition of economics, right, which follows David Ricardo and I guess culminates in Arrow and DeBrew and And even with like the modern growth theory, like Paul Romer and so forth, I mean, they kind of abstract from organization. And, you know, it's funny when I host uh, people who come to Silicon Valley, they always come to Silicon Valley saying, hey, I want to understand the technology, you know, tell me about data science, tell me about cloud computing and so forth. And I have to tell them, look, the innovations that matter, I mean, the ones that are most worthy of study for managers are really innovations in organizational design, right? And the design of ecosystems, the design of interfaces, the design of contracts, right? These sorts of things. And I guess one question is, does it make sense to talk about those things as technologies, right? Or is that really a metaphor or is that truly a good way, a useful way to think about how economic activity evolves over time? I think it's a good way to think about it. I mean, like all metaphors, it has its limits, but a lot of people have talked about that. Dick Nelson has talked about technologies and organizations in that way as well, that they are ways of doing things. If you think of of, as organizations as composed of capabilities of routines, as Nelson and Witter would say, ways of doing things, and that's sort of like technology. Technology is ways of doing things. They're intermediated by something more, right, something physical in in many ways. Uh, But you're right about the mainstream theory there. If you study industrial organization in an economics department, it's basically all game theory. But there is a branch of the economics of organization that is sort of mainstream, although it's not as popular a big thing 
within economics as it once was. But I mean, Oliver Hart won a Nobel Prize for doing some of this stuff, you know, mathematical models. So, of course, so so did Kosin Williamson, who did the kinds of things without really much in the way of mathematical models, especially Coase. So I, I follow more in the Kosin Williamson uh, tradition, not the sort of formal modeling, but to try to think about organizations in a more qualitative, theoretical, but a more qualitative theoretical way. Well, now, Ronald Coase, of course, when he contrasts kind of the market form of organization and the hierarchical form of organization, he emphasizes the trade-offs, right? And he emphasizes that what form of organization you pick is going to depend on, on the margin. But Chandler tells a very different story. I mean, he seems to tell this story of, it's almost like a Whig history, right? Where there's an end point, right? I never thought of it this way, but I guess there's a similarity between what, what Chandler's point of view is and the, the progressive point of view, right? And maybe even the, the Marxist point of view, which is that we're moving towards ever greater forms of sophisticated organization, bigger hierarchies, and so forth. And this is comes about as a result of lower cost of information and, and so forth. So, I mean, tell me more about that perspective, right? What, what did Chandler, how did Chandler approach this? And why did he think that this was almost inevitable that we would have bigger and bigger organizations? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I spent some time on this in the book because part of the book is a kind of deconstruction of the idea of managerialism. And I tie it back to kind of the progressive era and the idea that science and scientific management would kind of replace the market, would replace uh, human activity as the way of management. Once we had science, we would we could manage rationally. And Chandler was not deeply into the progressive movement, but he was very much a child of sort of a Cold War child of the progressive movement, the view that managers now have the skills, they have the tools, they're taught in business schools. That was sort of an important part of the story. Business schools would teach managers all these techniques that they would need, then they could manage anything. And so what he tells us is, is indeed the story of the rise of management. It is like a, a an eras, if you will. There was the era of Adam Smith when things were small and we could use markets. But he argues that once a large firm emerged, we were in a new era and we needed a new mode of coordination and this was the management. And so the book is about the rise of management in many ways and how, how it grew in various industries and so on. And he doesn't think very much about it. A way of thinking about it I've only recently thought about in, in talking to some other people is that Chandler really doesn't, is not really very interested in history in the sense of events. He's interested in, in history at a much higher level Right. And I'm trying to do both in some sense, trying to do the higher level of thinking about Coase and Schumpeter, but also bringing in events. Because part of my theory and uh, my thesis in this book is Chandler is wrong to neglect events. Right. So one of the big ideas in the book is that the events of the 20th century were crucial to shaping organization. And Chandler says the opposite. Right. And I start early in the book with a quote from Chandler where he says this, that that all that matters is management, right? It was rational scientific planning that led to the modern corporation. Entrepreneurs and government policy had nothing to do with it, right? So that was sort of Chandler's view. 
And what I'm kind of arguing is, well, no, actually, entrepreneurs and government policy and exogenous events like the macroeconomy of the Great Depression had a significant effect on organization. Now, of course, this view of management, I mean, if you take it to its extreme, it doesn't, it's not just limited to, say, building out integrated railroads. It also would then make it possible to have business organizations with completely unrelated activities, right? So, I mean, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s, right, we had these companies where you'd make bowling balls and orange juice. <laughs> you know, you'd have, like, Coca-Cola owned a movie theater, right? I mean, some of these things made no sense, right? Yes, yes, exactly. But Chandler was actually a skeptic of the conglomerate movement, which was going on when he was, when he was writing. He, Chandler believed that firms ought to diversify only in related ways, and sort of late in life, he kind of adopted the what's come to be called the capabilities view in management, but also to some extent in economics. And he says, yeah, that kind of fits my story, that these large firms develop capabilities and they move into things that are related to the capabilities. It's very close to the theory of Edith Penrose, who had a similar theory at, that, at a similar time, that organizations create excess capacity in knowing how to manage things. And so they, they integrate into things that are like what they know how to do, right? If you make cars, you can integrate into pickup trucks because it's not that different. You can spread what you learned in making cars over to pickup trucks or tractors or something, right? And so Chandler very much believed in related diversification. And, and one of the stories I tell in the book is that in the post-war period, especially in the 60s, Antitrust was very strong in the 50s and 60s. And so related diversification became hard for what were really in some ways public policy reasons, right? You know, you had the antitrust authorities stopping mergers of tiny firms with other tiny firms, and you couldn't really buy something in your own. If you bought it, something that was in your own field, well, that, that would be lessening competition in that field, and so you couldn't do it. So what did people do when they had the, all their this excess cash flow in the 60s, they put their excess cash flow into things that weren't related at all to what they were doing because there was no antitrust problem, right? You weren't changing any, anything about, about the market at all. You were just investing in things. So it put a layer of decision-making between the financial markets and the divisions that were actually doing things, right? When finance people say that's a bad idea, there's a diversification discount. If you want to diversify, buy the things themselves. Don't buy something that then is going to buy the things themselves, right? And so what happens in the 1980s is that this gets undone. Financial markets start to develop because we get into a period of deregulation where people see $5 bills on the ground if they can deregulate financial institutions, if they can deregulate other things. And so you get a much more robust financial system. And so I think this is one important way to think about it. My story is really about institutional substitutes that markets and firms and things in between. I talk a lot about complex contracting, which is sort of what's in between the anonymous spot contracting of the market and the sort of Chandlerian uh, management, those things are substitutes for one another. And if you make one of those things costly, and so the depression made markets costly, antitrust made complex contracting costly, what are you going to do? People are going to substitute into the thing that is left, whether or not it's the best thing, right? Even if they would have preferred to use complex contracts like 
franchising or exclusive dealing, exclusive territories, that becomes illegal. So they're not going to do that. They're going to do things in-house in, in, instead. And so kind of the unintended consequence is to bolster the large corporation. But just to finish the, the thought about financial deregulation, with financial deregulation, financial markets in the 80s become much more powerful than they were in the 50s and 60s. So in the 50s and 60s, internal capital markets looked really good because financial markets weren't very powerful, right? So in one way to think about the conglomerates is they were internal capital markets that were doing what was doing capital market things because they were better at it. They had deeper and better institutions in that period than the external capital markets did. By the 80s, that's reversed, right? By the 80s, the external capital markets get very powerful, more powerful than the internal capital markets of the firm. And so you get leverage buyouts and things like that, which re, which undo the conglomerates and then put things back together in a more related way that Chandler would have approved of, right? That you sell off something, to, you sell off an unrelated division to a company that actually makes that kind of stuff, right? Instead of owning something that's completely different from what you know how to do. Right. And so the size and shape of the firm is going to be dictated in part by the coordination costs across these different decisions at different levels of the production process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's going to depend on the, the scope of the market, the depth of the market, the, the liquidity, and the degree to which these things are, are standardized. And, you know, it seems like there, there isn't necessarily any one solution, right? So you talk a bit about the car industry, right? And how Henry Ford, I mean, he, he wanted to, to integrate everything, but, but ultimately that made sense when there weren't any parts markets, but once the parts markets evolved, then it really made no sense. And he fell further and further behind because he refused to right, de-verticalize. I, I see it interesting right now. I mean, I have a lot of folks uh, in the car industry who come and speak in my class and Elon Musk in many ways is sort of a a rebirth of, of Henry Ford because he, his, yeah, he, he self-consciously talks about that at times. Yeah. But in, in part it's because the standardized interfaces for what, what he's doing, he has to create a whole new product and presumably he's going to de-verticalize at, at some point, potentially. Right. I think that's right. That, that he's, they started with the software and they didn't know how to make cars and they sort of had to learn how to do that. And that's part of my account, right? That if you're changing you're innovating in a systemic way where you have to change lots of different things simultaneously, right? Like making a car and there are no standards yet. And, and in fact, how to make a car may not have been invented, right? So why was Henry Ford so vertically integrated? Because the, the transaction costs, if you want to put it that way, of dealing with outside suppliers were extremely high because the outside suppliers knew a lot less about what was needed. They knew less about how to make the tools that Henry Ford did, right? There, there are all these famous stories about when Ford tried to outsource. They say, we'd make us a bunch of a machine with this specification, and the suppliers would come back and say, no, that's impossible. That machine can't be made. And Ford would say, well, yes, it can. We just made one, <laughs> right? So, th so they knew how to make these things, and the outside suppliers were playing catch-up because nobody had ever made machines like this before. And I think there is an argument. There's something going on like that 
with the electric car. The traditional car makers are much more vertically disintegrated than Tesla because they know how to make cars, and they, but they don't know as much about the software, so they're buying a lot of the software stuff. And so it's kind of the opposite. They're starting with knowing how to make cars and buying software. Right. Now, at the beginning of the book, you spent a lot of time talking about the kind of birth of antitrust, right, and the progressive movement. And I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about that story, right? I mean, we have these very highly stylized dichotomies in our popular understanding of what went on in those times. And I think that the, because Brandeis's perspective and Roosevelt's perspective and Arnold's perspective, all these folks, they had very different views of what antitrust was all about. But it's clear that the evolution of the firm was shaped in many ways by the, the legal regime, right? Yes. I mean, even Chandler admits that in the beginning. So he's actually one of the proponents of the argument that the Sherman Antitrust Act hastened the, the the integrated corporation, because what the Sherman Act said is that you can't have cartels, basically, right? So the cartels are restraints of trade. And so what can you do to avoid that? Well, you can hide all of your, hide your cartel inside a big organization, basically, right? Where everybody is inside the organization. And once everybody's inside the organization, then Chandler says, well, look, what we really did is we kind of, we, we put a, a covering over the cartel so that people can't see it anymore. But we changed the ownership structure, right? So that stockholders now own all the pieces instead of each individual owning their own firm. What's in the stockholders' interest? Well, they want to rationalize this, right? So what the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to hire managers and the managers are going to close some divisions and they're going to, they're going to put money into others. And before you know it, you have the modern corporation where we have a centralized office, managers are running things, in part at least, Chandler thinks. These firms were created as a way to kind of hide what was going on so that uh, it couldn't be subject to antitrust. And if it hadn't been antitrust, if there hadn't been antitrust, things might have looked a lot more like the way they looked in Europe, where you had cartels and you had lots of smaller independent firms. And that may or may not have been a good thing, right? I mean, especially in the early days, I mean, the, the U.S. tended to do better with these large firms than foreign competitors did with lots of small firms. So maybe the unintended consequences of that were good. I don't know. Well, so I think the popular conception of antitrust is that it's all about breaking up big firms and converting them into smaller firms, right? Like the trust busters. But I think your, your point is that, in fact, you may have gotten the opposite result, right? So look at something like resale price maintenance. Here is a, an arrangement between companies that is frowned upon, but the equivalent of an integrated firm is, is not uh, frowned upon. So is there like a road not taken? I mean, you're alluding to it like something similar to Europe, but you highlight all of these kind of cross-firm arrangements, whether they're horizontal or whether they're vertical, and there seems to be pyramiding ownership structures and those things, you see a lot of that in Europe. You, you don't see that in, in the U.S. And that was a, a byproduct of this policy, right? Not just antitrust, but also for instance, regulation of utilities and specific industry regulations. Right. And taxation policy. and like, Yeah, like taxing inter-firm dividends and that sort of thing. Exactly. So, I mean, part of what I want to do is kind of demystify antitrust, right? So de-romanticize it, right? The romantic view of antitrust is there were these terrible, these big firms emerged 
and well-intentioned smart people realized that, that we had to do something to save the, the country from these big firms, and so we created antitrust. And it turns out that's not what happened at all. It was all politics. It was all public choice, right? And there was really very little economics in antitrust until really after World War II. There was a bigger theme, right, of populism in the United States. The United States has always been a populist country, the small guy, right, going back to the founding or even before the founding of the country, right? It's all about the little guy. And so there was always in the U.S., much more than in Europe, a suspicion of the corporation, of holding companies in particular, right? And they, especially the idea that a holding company could own stock in another holding company and get, as you said, the pyramids, that turns out that there's a lot of nice properties to that in a sense, right? And it seems to be a kind of default because we see it all around the world except in the U.S., which actively destroyed that form of organization, right? So pyramided holding companies, right, it's really kind of a, a, a modularization. That's the way I think of it, right? So you create a holding company that has a corporate personhood and, and, and it can write contracts and it's infinitely live and all, has all these nice properties with clean legal boundaries around it and so on. And that, I think, is, has a lot of nice properties to it as opposed to an integrated firm, which is very complex, right? If you've got an integrated firm, everything's connected to everything else. And that's fine if you believe in scientific management, right? If you believe that managers can control complex systems, then sure, have everything connected to everything else. But if you don't believe that, then it might be better to have much more of a modular system. And that modular system wasn't possible in the U.S. because of this kind of suspicion of the holding, the, the suspicion of holding companies, which you can see right, right through this whole period. And that's more than... I mean, the size of the firms was significant too, but the very fact of holding companies that throughout the the early period of antitrust, right? And you had two approaches, as you said, there's sort of the Brandeis, Woodrow Wilson, even, well, and other people as well had this view that we want small firms for the sake of small firms, right? That was sort of the classic American populism. We don't care about efficiency. We, we want a country in which there's lots of small players because it's good for people. Well, I think the new Brandeisians would explicitly disavow any concern with consumer welfare, right? Like they would say that's not the point, right? Yes. I mean, if you read the new antitrust guidelines, they, I mean, they talk about it, but they talk about all sorts of things in, in there. And it's clear that they're saying that's not going to be our guiding uh, light. I mean, if you think about the sort of two streams of antitrust. One was the kind of Brandeis, Woodrow Wilson stream. The other was more the Teddy Roosevelt stream, which was, we like big companies. Uh, what we want to do is we want to politicize them. We want to have the government run them, control them, and tell them what to do, charter them, tell them even maybe set prices and stuff like that. But we like big firms, right? And, and, and I, Teddy Roosevelt, can tell just by looking which ones are good trusts and which ones are bad trusts. And what we got is kind of a compromise between that, right, as you might expect, right? So you get the Sherman Act is not repealed. You get, you get the Sherman Act. You get the Clayton Act, which is like the kind of Sherman Act-like, but lists some anti-competitive practices. And then you get the, the Federal Trade Commission, which is kind of the, the weakened form of the kind of commission that Teddy Roosevelt wanted. So we get this kind of jumbled system that is that is part Brandeis and part Teddy Roosevelt, really. But there's no there's not much economics in this at all. 
basically until the New Deal, right? Really after the New Deal. But what the turning point is Thurman Arnold. You mentioned Thurman Arnold. So Thurman Arnold was the head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department during the New Deal. And he was very against the kind of Brandeis, Woodrow Wilson view. He wrote a book called The Folklore of Capitalism, where he made fun of this whole view of antitrust busting because small firms are good for you and symbolic breaking up of firms and all this kind of stuff. He was more on the Teddy Roosevelt side. He said he wanted the hands-on control of industry by the federal government. And so he set up a bureaucracy to do that. Right. So he turned the antitrust division into a bureaucracy. I make the point that it was not the later Chicago school, but it was, in fact, Thurman Arnold who invented the consumer welfare standard. Right. So that was going to be his standard, which is very different from Brandeis and and Wilson. Right. Because they didn't care about consumer welfare. Teddy Roosevelt, maybe. But that was kind of Thurman Arnold's touchstone. So when people say Robert Bork invented the consumer welfare standard, well, no, it was actually Thurman Arnold. But Arnold was not an economist. In fact, he was hostile to economics. And so it wouldn't be until after the war, where after the war you get this bureaucracy that's been created continues, because he created it. Plus, you get a lot of, for a variety of reasons, you get a lot of strong antitrust sentiment right after the war. You get the seller Kefauver Amendments and the Kefauver hearings and all of, all of this kind of stuff. We could talk about why that was, right? There was kind of a separation between kind of the cultural antitrust and the bureaucratic antitrust. The bureaucratic antitrust was rolling along in the background, but it was kind of given force by the cultural antitrust. And so if you've got this bureaucratic mechanism, you've got to have rules about what it's going to do. You have to have some account of what it is doing, right, in order to decide what cases to bring and so on. So what happens, they get con- the antitrust authorities get colonized by economists, right? So economics really starts, comes in after the war, uh, the structure, so-called structure conduct performance paradigm, which um, had a lot of problems intellectually with it, but it was a, a kind of a form of modern day economics where consumer welfare, economic efficiency, consumer welfare is one part of economic efficiency. So economic efficiency, maybe along with some other things, was important. And that kind of got refined by criticism. So the Chicago School comes along and it criticizes a lot of the things that the SCP paradigm believes, but it's really a criticism. It's not a new paradigm in a sense. It's saying you got these things wrong, but we agree with you that economics ought to be used, that the basis of antitrust ought to be economics, and that economic efficiency ought to be the criterion, but we just have a different account of how that works. So the difference between the, you know, the SCP and the Chicago School is less than people often imagine. Right. But uh, to pick up on your point, uh, uh, how did this affect the firm? Right. So after World War Two, you get this very intense antitrust enforcement. And a lot of it is directed at complex contracting. Right. You you mentioned resale price maintenance. That's gone back and forth in the law over the years. Information sharing across organizations. Right. Exactly. And you see that right after World War Two, during World War Two the antitrust had been turned off, right? Reluctantly, Thurman Arnold was forced to sign a memorandum of agreement that gave the defense agencies complete authority over what cases could be brought. 
so they didn't bring any cases right during the war because they didn't want to interfere with war production by having antitrust cases against the firms that were doing that were building all the stuff that they they needed for the war and so so what goes on during the war is lots of cross firm innovation right so so things like the b29 bomber penicillin all this kind of stuff that was developed you know, amazing in some ways stuff that was developed during the war oil refining rubber production right this was companies talking to each other right and they were allowed to do that and so they'd set up a a team with with people from the government people from all the firms and they say what are we going to do who knows what well i got a guy who knows this oh over in my company we have a guy who knows that we'll put them together Right. And so you've got this rapid innovation because you had all this knowledge sharing during the war. When the war ends, that all stops because all of a sudden, well, for a lot of reasons, right, we're not fighting the war anymore. So people aren't going to be as generous as they were in terms of intellectual property. But also they know that antitrust is back. Right. And so the companies kind of stop cooperating with each other because they more or less have to. But you get this whole campaign after the war against these complex contracting, resale price maintenance, franchising, tying arrangements, exclusive dealing, exclusive territories, right? All these things, which are contractual arrangements between legally separate firms, the government says, well, these are all anti-competitive, right? So Oliver Williamson famously called this the inhospitability tradition. That is, the priors of the Justice Department was that, that if we see something and we don't understand it, it must be bad. He was Williamson was especially incensed about the, the Schwinn decision. He had been, Williamson, when he was young, was a, an assistant to Donald Turner in the antitrust division, and the, they were bringing and winning this suit against Schwinn, which made bicycles, right? And Schwinn wanted to have exclusive dealing arrangements, exclusive territories with its distributors. And the government brought a suit against this. That's anti-competitive. Not clear why it's anti-competitive, right? But it's anti-competitive. And Williamson was incensed. He thought this was stupid. And and it's sort of, in, in part, that's kind of what got Williamson into thinking about organizations. He says, people haven't, we don't really think about this in economics. Why would somebody have this kind of contract? Why? So let's think about these contracts. Why would you have them in the first place? So in the case of Schwinn, right, if Schwinn had owned its own distributors, nobody would have said anything. If, if they had all of a sudden vertically integrated into distributors to compete with existing distributors, that might have raised some eyebrows. But if they had always been a company that, had, that owned its own distributors, nobody's going to say anything because we can't see inside the company. That's just the way this industry happens to work. Right. There's all kinds of other transactions inside the company that we can't observe. And we don't call those anti-competitive. If you do something through contract, it's forbidden. If you do it inside the firm, it's not forbidden. What does that suggest? It suggests that on the margin, you're going to see more and more things done in a hidden way inside the firm. And so the people who are trying to reduce the power of large integrated firms are actually in some ways ending up doing the opposite. Right. They're giving people incentives to do things inside of firms rather than through contract. Well, the other thing that I found interesting is that as a defense mechanism against being broken up, firms would almost demodularize. Right. They would sometimes scramble <laughs> things so that it made it more difficult to kind of get cut apart at the joints, so to speak. Right. So if you've got a nice, obvious 
joint, right? That's where the that's where the axe goes, right? Yes, no, no, absolutely. You know, I was dilating on modularity a minute ago, and I said if a firm is integrated and it's a spaghetti tangle and everything's connected to everything else, that's really hard to manage, right? Unless you believe in omniscient scientific managers, right? It's really hard to manage. You want to modularize that. And, and as Chandler tells his story, that's exactly what they did. So you went from a world of small modular firms to these big integrated firms, but then they realized those firms were too big. And then they modularized them in something called the M form or the multi-divisional form. And so you can think of the multi-divisional form as just like a holding company, except that it's wholly owned. Because one of the big complaints of the progressives was holding companies were not wholly owned. So if JP Morgan owned 10%, of some company, but had controlling board of directors, they might be screwing the minority shareholders. So if you read uh, Brandeis or Burley and Means, that's really what they were worried about. They weren't worried about managers at all. I mean, people nowadays think that Burley and Means is about the agency problem between managers and owners, but that's not what they were interested in. They were actually interested in the problem of between block holders uh, like J.P. Morgan and minority shareholders, and he thought the minority shareholders were getting were getting screwed. So a lot of public policy made it really hard to have those pyramids, as we've been talking about, right? And so firms integrated instead to get away from the the, the this policy that was aimed against holding companies, and then they remodularized into the M form. So like the Chevrolet division was like a module, the Buick division, right? The Pontiac division, all of these were semi-independent modules. They would, depending on the era, they would be more or less independent. They got less independent during the depression because demand collapsed and stuff. But in general, they were independent divisions. And so they were modules. So that that led to a clean break point, as you say, for dismembering it. So in the 50s, the Justice Department sued General Motors under Section 7 of the Clayton Act and wanted to break it up the way they had broken up they had broken up standard oil and, and American tobacco and so on in, in the early century into its constituent divisions, right? So so if they had gotten their way, Chevrolet would have been a separate company and Buick would have been a separate company, right? And all that kind of stuff. And so they lost that case. Well, they didn't break up. I mean, in a sense, Justice Department won, but they, they did not break up General Motors. And so what General Motors did, some journalists are looking at this and they're saying, we're under constant threat from the Justice Department who wants to break us up. If one false move, and for example, they were worried about Ford going out of business after World War II because the company was a, a mess and it almost went out of business. And Alfred P. Sloan says, here, take some of my top executives, Ford, because we got to save you. It's like Microsoft bailing out Apple, right, in the late 90s, right? Or Google keeping Mozilla afloat. Right? Right, exactly. But the point that you were making, I think, is actually a very important one and one that that people haven't really noticed, which is the threat of antitrust or other public policies can influence the organizational division decisions inside a firm, often in ways that are inefficient, right, or that maybe aren't the best way to do things. So in this case, General Motors is sitting there and they're saying... They want to break us up because we've got these nice modular divisions. So we're going to demodularize. We're going to we're going to create something called the General Motors Assembly Division, which is going to assemble cars for all the divisions, right? And I mean, there were some other. I mean, they had ideas about standardization and stuff like that, but it was 
in, in significant part aimed at antitrust, right? So that they can't break us up. And it was also aimed at the unions, right? Because they were in the process of, instead of having these clean divisions, what they wanted to do is they wanted to kind of outsource things in a more general way in the company to less unionized regions of the country and then eventually eventually Mexico and places like that. And so instead of having the these geographically compact ecosystems that they used to have with everything in one place, that was very dangerous from a strike point of view, which they learned in 1937 when the UAW shut down the dyes at, at Fisher Body Dyes for all the cars. So they said, well, we're going to we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going to reorganize in ways that are going to protect us from unions. And this led later on, this led to the much maligned, I think correctly maligned era when the car companies were not working closely with suppliers, but were just handing out handing out specifications to lots and lots of suppliers and competing on, and making them compete on price. Right. So in the 1920s, they worked closely with suppliers. Suppliers gave them ideas. The, the aftermarket industry was actually leading in a lot of innovation areas. But after the war, they said, we've got all this equipment going. We can't have a shutdown. Right. We can't have a strike. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to integrate more, for one thing. So the unions lead to more vertical integration because we want to be able to control um, our labor. Right. We'll, we'll have the, this Treaty of Detroit with the labor unions and we'll try to control, use that to control uh, our own labor situation. But we can't control the, the strikes that, are, that might be going on with the suppliers. So we're, instead, we're, we're going to stop working with the suppliers the way we used to. And we're going to work with lots of lots and lots of small suppliers. And if one shuts down, no problem, because we're going to we can immediately resource to somebody else. Right. So it was basically supply chain disruption organization, right? So, so I mean, in, in some way, uh, a lot like what we saw with COVID, right? Pe and people saying, well, we have to insure ourselves against supply chain disruption. How are we going to, how are we going to do that? You organize very differently if you're not worried about supply chain disruption, right? So the just-in-time inventory system was invented not by the Japanese, invented by the Americans in the 1920s because they didn't, they weren't worried about their supply chains, right? So they, the suppliers were reliable. They weren't unionized. The car makers had close ties with the companies and the companies would just drop off the parts exactly when they were needed. And that's what the Japanese copied when they started um, entering the automobile industry. So so the point is, and I don't want to say that I have the last word here, but but I, I, I do want to say that, that I think it, it, we need to think more about the ways in which these exogenous factors influence internal organization instead of instead of only thinking about organization from an internal point of view right so how, how do we organize how do we manage how should we structure it well we also want to think about what are what the external constraints on organizational forms are it may lead us to create organizational forms that aren't the kinds that we would have chosen in a perfect world Right. right. And so when you emphasize the importance of events, right, I mean, you talk about World War One, you talk about the Depression, you talk about World War Two, and those all led to bigger firms, right, more integrated entities. And and part of that is, is just about uncertainty reduction, but part of it has to do with government policy. So to, to what extent? It's a part of it is a, is a selection effect, right? If you get, but, and that's, that's especially true of the Depression, that you, that a lot of 
market-oriented organization in the economy gets destroyed by the depression and the big firms don't get destroyed, right? So you start to observe the big firms as much more important than they used to be, not because it, in some perfect world they were a better form, but because of a selection effect. Well, I want to return to the Burley and Means critique, right? Because you made me rethink that. Because I think you're right. All the folks who use the, talk about that critique in, in the modern world, they think of it as primarily, and that's why we teach it in our classes. We think about it primarily as a conflict between the shareholders and the managers. I have a wonderful, I have a wonderful quote in the book that, that, that I found where Burley and Means say, don't worry about managers, just pick the best people and give them complete discretion. That's how you manage a firm. So they weren't, they didn't, because they were progressives, right? That's what they believed. They believed in scientific management. So they hoped the managers weren't the problem. It was JP Morgan that was the problem, right? Yeah, so it's a controlling shareholder. So it's really about the controlling shareholders are, are the problem. And I think we've seen this same critique rise its head recently with the critiques on private equity, right? So I just did a podcast recently and we were discussing this. And I said, wait, private equity has more or less solved the agency problem, right? Because the interests of the shareholders are aligned with, the, with, with that of the managers. There's no conflict here. But the critiques of private equity oftentimes are more like this old Berlin Means critique, which is that the, the GPs are running off with all the money, right? And the LPs are kind of screwed. I think that's the, the new critique of private equity, right? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what J.P. Morgan was. So J.P. Morgan was KKR. In part, in in the case of J.P. Morgan, is because it, because financial markets hadn't arisen. I think now it's because financial markets are, are more developed. And I think, but there's some story there. And I this is something that I'm not really a, an expert or a student of. But people have made the claim that we're seeing a lot more private equity, partly because it's harder for for firms to go public now. Right. I mean, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, that that a, after Dodd-Frank and a lot of these other things, that every, every reaction to a, a depression or a recession is to increase regulation. And that makes it harder for, for people. They have to disclose more. So you so people are staying startups are staying private a lot longer now. Right. And, and they're exiting more by being bought up rather than going public. So in, in, two, in the year 2000, everybody wanted to go public. Now, People want to want to stay private, and I think you're right. There's also some good incentives there too, because the you're keeping your knowledge right, and because the the laws now say you have to disclose all this stuff. If you don't go public, you don't have to disclose your knowledge, right? And so you can manage that with you manage that knowledge more carefully for a while until you're actually ready to either go public or to get bought up by somebody. Now, I think another main theme in all of your work is this this idea that there's different types of competition. There's the sort of competition that most neoclassical economists focus on, right? Which is presuming that knowledge is fixed and that production technologies are fixed. And it's really all about earning monopoly rents. Okay. And then there's other type of competition, the Schumpeterian competition, where new forms of organization arise that will destroy the old forms. And I think part of your point is that we spend too much time thinking about the former and failing to appreciate the importance of the latter. And this helps us, I think, to interpret the rise of Standard Oil and other big companies differently, but it also helps us to understand kind of Google and Microsoft, right? So it's fascinating when we look back, I remember I used to talk about network effects in my classes and I would talk about Microsoft and how 
they had more or less locked down right the operating system and it was a monopoly and it was destined to stay like that forever and then lo and behold it's on the ropes just a few years left right I make that lecture right i mean yeah there's a story i tell about the microsoft trial where microsoft really instead of the justice department did this neoclassical story about market shares and the standard stuff and instead of rebutting that because it was pretty hard to rebut it because they had a 90 percent market share and if you define the market as intel compatible personal computers right so they said well there's all these other threats and they're very vague about it. There might someday there might be these like handheld devices that are going to make computers obsolete. And maybe that you'll just be able to plug into the wall and get your software and you won't have to buy it on a CD anymore. And people laughed at them and right, said that was just exactly what we expect Microsoft to say. Right. Of course, that's exactly what happened. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it took 10, 15 years, but that's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. There's a meme that's been going around for a long time where you hear all kinds of people saying it. I just saw it in a in an op-ed in the New York Times a few weeks ago. And that is, well, why we need antitrust, activist antitrust, because look, in the 20th century, Justice Department sued IBM, and if they hadn't sued IBM, IBM would have taken over the personal computer industry. And then at the end of the century, Justice Department sued Microsoft, and if they hadn't sued Microsoft, Microsoft would have taken over the internet. But it turns out that's all completely wrong, right? People who have actually studied these industries, some wonderful work that's been done on this, going back, interviewing the people who were the executives and looking at the structure of the industry and all of this. It turns out IBM was in no position to take over the personal computer. They were having their lunch handed to them. And IBM was, was just structurally not constructed to be able to deal with that market. Right. And it had nothing to do with the antitrust suit. And they, the reason IBM imploded was because of the you know, Moore's law and the chain, right, all that stuff, not because of the antitrust suit. Same thing with Microsoft. Microsoft didn't want to control the Internet. They wanted to protect the operating system. So they wanted to make sure that they could they could protect the operating system and not, and not take advantage of all these things that the Internet could produce. And they did exactly what Microsoft did. They took the innovative division. Right, the PC division in one case and the and the browser division in the other case, and they brought them back in-house and put the, and assigned them to executives of the old stuff. Right. We're gonna manage this like we manage the old stuff. And it's simply it's just simply not true. And everybody says, well, and then there's and then there's the AT&T suit, and I think that's right. The AT&T suit broke up what was a congested a monopoly, but that was more deregulation than it was antitrust, right? It was deregulation via antitrust. This was not a, a spontaneous monopoly. This was a government-created monopoly, and the antitrust suit restructured that government-created monopoly. Well, I think one of the big mysteries in, in economics is, why is it then that Schumpeterian innovation works? I mean, why don't these large companies disrupt themselves. I mean, I think there was a belief at one point that the innovation would all happen within the companies. And what we've seen is that typically the large scale innovations happen as a result of new companies. So, I mean, is there some law of inertia? <laughs> is that a trend or is that a law? And then if it is, I mean, is it in part because the, these companies, they want to use the political, the regulatory and the legal system to 
safeguard their rents? And, and if that's true, then is there a legitimate concern about companies getting so big that they can influence the political system? Okay, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a two-part question and a very hard question. I, for the first part, I would say that if you think about things through the lens of capabilities, of sort, of, sort of Nelson and Winter or George Richardson kind of David T. sort of view of the world, how do you learn to do something in the that firms? This is what you were saying a minute ago about the neoclassical model. They assume that everybody has the same knowledge of how to produce things. In the real world, you have to learn how to produce things, and that that knowledge is private information most most of the time. Uh, and so you you learn how to make a car a certain way. Ford was a very good example of this. They had fine tuned how to make a Model T, but the slightest change from that they couldn't handle. Right, because everything was hardwired, and, and so why is that? Well, in some way, it's a, the famous idea from Leventhal and March that you, there's a trade-off between actually doing something and looking for new things, right? And so, if you're always spending your time looking for new ideas, you're not going to get really good at the things you're doing, or you can focus on the things that you're doing and get really good at them, but then you're going to be really bad at looking around. All right. And people in management, they try to say, well, we're going to, David T says, well, dynamic capabilities, we're going to try to ignore that trade-off and say that managers can figure out how not to have that trade-off, right? Flexible companies and all this, a lot of stuff in management. But in the end, I don't, I think it's the case that if you get really good at one thing, like operating systems or, or like a big office computing systems, just the fact of getting good at that is going to make it hard for you to be good at other things, especially at other things that are different from what you're doing. There's a lot of barriers there. And so people who are coming in without those preconceptions, right? Maybe you're seeing that in the in the electric car industry, right? People coming in who had made cars before, they may be better at doing it because they don't have a lot of the preconceptions of the, the older thing. The second question, the second part of your question is, is really hard. And this is a, a point that a lot of people make. They say, well, if firms get large, even if they are efficient, so things like Amazon and Google, one could argue and probably should argue are just extremely efficient and good for consumers, right? And it's not in the traditional neoclassical story, it's not clear that either of them is restricting output or raising prices, which is what we... Well, I think, I mean, the studies show that the contribution to welfare of these companies is, is enormous. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, Eric Brynjolfsson has done all these, and other people have done these studies. But people say, well, we'll grant you that, okay, that they're not monopolies in the neoclassical sense. They're not harming consumers. They're helping consumers. But we just don't want firms to be big because big firms will then have control, will be able to spend money on politicians and have control of the government and that, and that sort of thing. I am very skeptical of that. There's certainly plenty of corruption, but I don't think it works through big companies, big companies paying people, right? Economists have looked at this and companies are very good at influencing the government when it's some narrow thing that really affects them, like a tariff on something. But influencing the government in some general way, in uh, what the results show is that companies don't care. They'll give money to whoever's going to leave them alone, right? And, and in fact, one account, I think this is like Steve Levitt, right? One account is companies, what companies really do is they pay politicians to leave them alone, right? So it's not that they're trying to influence the government in their favor. I mean, that certainly has happened in American history, and it certainly happens around the world, and, and I guess still happens in some ways today, but 
but uh, I, I'm a skeptic of that argument. Right. Well, look, you could have written a book called The Vanishing Hand, because I think that's part of your message across the board. We had the invisible hand, we had Chandler's visible hand, and now we've got this vanishing hand. And uh, of course, a, a big part of what I teach in, in my classes is the rise of composable enterprise, extreme modularity, and these ecosystems that allow pretty much anything to become available as a service, right? So you can kind of drag and drop, cut and paste, and assemble various functionalities and build yourself a billion-dollar corporation, right, with some connector code. But yet, at the same time, we have these huge companies that dominate the S&P. So how do we make sense of that? Because it's the message of the vanishing hand, I think, is a compelling one, but we have simultaneously the rise of massive platforms. Yeah. Well, first of all, on the vanishing hamster was actually that Schumpeter book that you showed at the beginning. That's that's kind of the vanishing hand story. And what, in, in some ways, the motivation for this book was that I wasn't really explaining the events of the middle part of the 20th century. That I, I said, well, there's Chandler's story in the late 19th century, and then eventually markets thicken and market-supporting institutions come along. And so we get a much more dis, uh, vertically disintegrated structure and I said, well, what happened in the middle? And so that's what this book is about. And I said, what happened? What happened in the middle? But I mean, if you say it, when you when you say it that way, it, it sounds like it's it's a it's just a blip, right? An anomaly. But but of course it's not. I mean, we it's it's more of a ebb and flow throughout history. Yeah, I guess I guess that's right. I mean, could this happen again? Kind of question, right? I mean, I think we're seeing at least the outlines of worry about that now with all of this friendshoring and disengaging from China, right, and, and a lot of this stuff. And so we're kind of creating a new external environment that's sort of less conducive to markets in some ways. Maybe, I mean, nothing like the Great Depression or the New Deal, but something is, so things can, or disruptions like COVID, right, was kind of a mini Great Depression, right? Its dynamics were very different, right? It, it was a shock to the system. And so these things can happen. On your larger question, that I, th I imagine you know Carlos Baldwin, who's coming out with a uh, a new book soon, which is a, it's the second volume of the the 2000 Baldwin and Clark book, the Modularity book, the Modularity book, and eagerly anticipated by by all of us. Um, but she has a chapter in there which is basically her Chandler chapter, and what she does, she makes this distinction. She says, look, there are two kinds of complex systems. One is what she calls step processes. So like making a car is a step process. First you do this, then you do that, then you do the next thing, then you do the other thing, right? And her claim is that sort of from a technological, it's almost a kind of quasi-technological determinism. That kind of complex system fits very well with a large vertically integrated firm, right? And I would say, yeah, maybe. I mean, that's in some ways, that's kind of a challenge to what I'm saying. But on the other hand, it's perfectly possible to vertically disintegrate step processes too. And we saw that, right? And so in the 20s, as it, we saw the rise of component makers and so on. And when parts became standardized, outsiders could make them and so on. Well, well even today, I mean, if you think about software, I mean, software is just a, bu a bunch of routines and units that you then make more complex ones and more complex ones. And when you look at the, the complete stack, it's made up of lots of, bits and pieces made from all sorts of providers, right? Right. No, a a a absolutely. But to, just to finish the thought, I mean, the other kind of complex system, she says, is a platform. 
right? So a platform, unlike a step process, is not trying to make anything, right? It's trying to create options. Options is a big Carlos Baldwin word, right? So create options for other people to do things. So most of the big companies we have now are not. So in the middle of the century, our big companies were step processes, right? They were making cars and other kinds of stuff. But now the, the big companies are really in, increasingly platforms, right? Especially with cloud computing, even Microsoft is uh, right, inc increasingly a, a platform. And I think that's really what we're seeing. And they're, those companies are getting big, but they're big platforms. They're not big step process firms. And so it's a, in a sense, it's a very different kind of a a very different kind of an animal, right? I mean, you expect you would expect if General Motors got very large, it would raise the prices of its cars, and, right, and restrict output or whatever. But platforms don't want to do that because they want to be they want to have as many users as possible, right? So the last thing a platform wants to do is restrict output. They want to get as much. They want to get as many users as possible. Now, I you probably don't spend a lot of time teaching business school students, right? But I mean, no, I'm a little bit. So I'm taking my organization course over the years. But it seems impossible to be a manager today without having a, a good understanding of how organizations work. And so I'm wondering. I mean, presumably we should see a big proliferation of these sorts of ideas nowadays because it's impossible to understand what's happening in the world without a, a good grasp of. Uh, what I think of as organizational economics. But I mean, if we look at the the resources devoted to the teaching of conventional neoclassical economics, it's probably overweighted. I mean, we have to understand how markets work, but organizations are, are the, the, the complement to markets, right? Right, right. No, I think that's right. I mean, I sort of think of it as kind of drunk under the light post problem, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to do neoclassical economics than it is to think hard about <laughs> about organization where things are fuzzy and not clear and they're historical and so on. And it's hard to justify that your answers are right if you're doing that, right? It's a lot easier to prove to people that you've got the right answer if, you're, if you've got regressions or equations. And it's easier to get tenure if you can prove to people that you're right about something. And so we look where the light is good, not necessarily where the keys are. Well, Richard, look, thanks so much for joining me. Lots of interesting things here. We barely scratched the surface. This is really a, a great book, a worthy successor to both Schumpeter and, and Chandler. For a more concise <laughs> uh, version of your some of your key theses, uh, check out the dynamics of industrial capitalism and, of course, firms, markets, and economics change, which I, I think of as a classic, and I hope that gets wider readership. So thanks so much. Well, I'm flattered and, and very glad to have had this conversation. Well, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.